Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of The Eastern Border. Now, even though this is a Stalin episode, trust me, it is, uh, this intro has been recorded after the everything else I, I've posted in this episode, but um, just update you on a bit on the political situation in Russia, because this actually kind of ties into what we're going to be talking about here, about how immeasurable power can be acquired easily and uh, old ideals can be thrown off and that the situation changes and political realism sometimes dictates the day despite what has been promised before because all all of these are the themes of today's episode i would like to say that uh, you might have heard of this little thing as the world cup and football in russia well the people in russia are you know during the football they have been like um received suspended rights. That means the people in Russia are prohibited from protesting, going out on the streets, even in a singular protest. Like, every protest action has been prohibited and their rights of freedom of speech and protest have been basically suspended during the World Cup Championship. Just so you know, there will be less threats of terrorism, as the government says. And again, this will uh, come to play in today's episode. What this means is that nobody can really, you know, they have to wait until the championship ends until they can start arguing about what the government is doing. But what the government has been doing in Russia is in that in the very first day since the World Cup began, when Russia beat Saudi Arabia 5-0, Putin did what he had specifically promised not to do, and I quote here, as long as I am president, I will not increase the age of the retirement. That's his quote. He's like said that multiple times all over the place. Yeah, they increased uh, the age of retirement, uh, you know, the age from which you start to receive pensions from uh, 55 years uh, for women to 63 and from 60 to 65 to men. And, you know, uh, that's that's a normal age for us Europeans here. Like, uh, we also have something like that moving on in Latvia, and I know Estonia have similar plans, except that we actually have social guarantees, because Russia... Russia basically decided to take uh, off all the, um, all the kind of welfare 
welfare stuff for their pensioners, for their retired people in 2005 and just to monetize them, which means while in Riga, uh, if you are retired, you have free public transportation. In Russia, you just have a you know meager pittance added to your pension. You can't drive around for free. So they eliminated all that in 2005. Right now, they have done this. This is just an update on um, Russia collapsing eventually situation. Another thing that they have done is increase the value-added tax by 2%, from 18% to 20%. Well, in Latvia, it's 21% already for a while now, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, we have a pretty high value. We uh, increased it when it was the austerity period for us, but we kind of lived. But again, remember, we are an EU member country, and we have actually better situation here with salaries and everything because, oh, and also uh, the gasoline price has been constantly increasing in Russia. All this while uh, people are just, you know, happy about uh, football and legally disallowed to protest anything. But trust me, the most important things are going to happen after the championship ends. In one way or another, because we shall see a lot more oppression there. I just thought it was important to speak uh, about this at the beginning of an episode. What I'm kind of um, kind of talking about how Stalin actually got his immeasurable power and what was going on with him, with him there. And in a way, how all of this means an end to the Trotsky. But yeah, just tie this up together, because history and politics in Eastern Europe, they're always tied together. First off, we do have to speak about a document. You see, uh, this is a document which is called The Testament of Lenin. I I think I read it in my Lenin series, but it's high time to repeat it once again. This document will kind of guide us through the rest of the episode. It was his speech to the Congress, and I read the English translation from Lenin, Collected Works of, uh, published in Moscow, Progress Publishers in 1966, just in case. Volume 36, mind you. I do have about 28 volumes of Lenin's works, just just saying. But yeah, Lenin's so-called testament or speech to the Congress. <clears throat> By the stability of the Central Committee of which I spoke above, I mean measures against the split as far as such measures can at all be taken. For, of course, the White Guards in Raskaya Mis, which is uh, Oldenburg, by the way, at this point, SS Oldenburg, <clears throat> was right when, first in White Guards' game against Soviet Russia, they banked on a split in our party, and when secondly, they banked on grave differences in our party to cause that split. Our party relies on two classes, and therefore its instability would be possible and its downfall inevitable if there were no agreement between those two classes. In that event, this or that measure, and generally all talk about the stability of our central committee, would be, a f- would be futile. No measures of any kind could prevent the split in such a case. But I hope that this is too remote a future and too improbable an event to even talk about. I have in mind stability as a guarantee against the split in the immediate future, and I intend to deal here with a few ideas concerning personal qualities. I think that from this standpoint the prime factors in the question of stability are such members of the Central Committee as Stalin and Trotsky. I think relations between them make up the greater part of the danger of a split, which could be avoided, and this purpose, in my opinion, would be served, among other things, by increasing the number of Central Committee members to 50 or 100. Comrade Stalin, having become Secretary General, has unlimited authority concentrated in his hands, and I am not sure whether he will always be capable of using that authority with sufficient caution. 
Comrade Trotsky, on the other hand, as his struggles against the Central Committee on the question of the People's Commissariat of Communications has already proved, is distinguished not only by outstanding ability. He is personally perhaps the most capable man in the present Central Committee. But he has displayed excessive self-assurance and has shown excessive preoccupation with the purely administrative side of the work. These two qualities of the two outstanding leaders of the present Central Committee can inadvertently lead to a split. And if our party does not take steps to avert this, the split may come unexpectedly. I shall not give any further appraisals of the personal qualities of other members of the Central Committee. I shall just recall that the October episode with Zinoviev and Kamenev was, of course, no accident, but neither can the blame for it be laid upon them personally, any more than non-Bolshevism can upon Trotsky. Speaking of the young Central Committee members, I wish to say a few words about Bukharin and Pyatakov, and remember those names, especially Bukharin. Just the same. They are, in my opinion, the most outstanding figures among the younger ones, and the following must be borne in mind about them. Bukharin, uh, remember, cavalry officer, uh, Stalin's person, is not only a most valuable and major theorist of the party, he's also rightly considered the favorite of the whole party, but his theoretical views can be classified as fully Marxist only with the Great Reserve, for there is something scholastic about him. He has never made a study of dialectics, and I think he has never fully, appre fully appreciated it. December 25th. As for Pyatakov, he is unquestionably a man of outstanding will and outstanding ability, but shows far too much zeal for administrating and the administrative side of the work to be relied upon in a serious political matter. Both of these remarks are, of course, only made for the present, on the assumption that both of these outstanding and devoted party workers fail to find an occasion to enhance their knowledge and amend their one-sidedness. That was written on 24th of December 1922. Next day, 25th of December 1922. Much shorter one. Stalin is too rude, and this defect, although quite tolerable in our midst and in dealing among us communists, becomes intolerable in Secretary General. That is why I suggest the comrades think about a way of removing Stalin from that post and appointing another man in his stead, who in all respects differs from Comrade Stalin, in having only one advantage, namely that of being more tolerant, more loyal, more polite and more considerate to the comrades, less capricious, etc. This circumstance may appear to be a negligible detail, but I think, from the standpoint of safeguards against the split, and from the standpoint of what I wrote about the relationship between Stalin and Trotsky, it is not a detail, or it is a detail which can, and will, assume decisive importance. We're talking about immeasurable power here, and in a way, this is the moment where Lenin got truly prophetic. So, while Stalin was busy accumulating political power, Lenin's physical strength was fading. Mentioned that in last episode as well, but he was just falling down. And uh, this was definitely one of the reasons why Stalin actually, you know, made his turn against him. Lenin had fallen seriously ill towards the end of 1921, being obliged to rest for several weeks, and then on 25th of May, 22. He had a stroke which paralyzed his right arm and leg and impaired his speech. As he will later put it, Lenin that is, he could neither speak nor write and had to le relearn both of those processes. He did not start work again until early October and I read you uh, the document from December of that year. And he really never completely recovered if you think about this. Lenin feared he had tertiary syphilis. Lenin ordered elaborate examinations of his own and his wife's family health records. But 
whatever the causes of his condition, and there's a lot of, a lot of the thought put down there by all sorts of sources that he actually died from syphilis. It became clear in the course of 1922 that his days as leader were numbered, and that this, that this succession crisis would soon arrive. Stalin continued to clash with Lenin. Drafting the constitution, which would define Russia's relations with other republics, Stalin took a strong centralist line, which emphasized Russian dominance over its smaller associates and dismissed the Jewish principle of extraterritoriality. He also, really, showed himself to be, and this is quite, uh, you know, accurate as of today and why Stalin would kind of disagree with Khrushchev later on and why Khrushchev kind of made this a point. Because you see, Stalin was opposed to any form of any Ukrainian uh, autonomy, which is, again, another kind of parallel we can draw with today, displaying a hostility towards that country, which he basically kept until his dying day, and if you can draw some parallels here with Putin's obsession with Stalin, you can see where this is going one day. Lenin objected to policies in which he perceived that uh, this so-called Great Russian Chauvinism expressed itself, and Lenin, as much as he was a devout communist, was not a great Russian chauvinist. He had abhorred this idea. For him, as for, you know, a lot of communists at the time, the term Great Russia had connotations of an administration which was basically stuffed by, you know, all those thick-headed and crazy Russian policemen that basically had bullied Bolsheviks before. Lenin's opposition of the nationalities uh, on, on this issue kind of stems from kind of a genuine, I, I believe personally, that it's genuine difference of feeling, some sort of emotional repugnance, and um, and yeah, the somewhat inability to admit that um, that a centralized dictatorship must kind of necessarily lead to Russian domination over the other republics, which happened in the USSR and what is happening now in the Russian Federation. This truth, this obvious idea of total domination, was not lost upon Stalin, as he was a complete and utter realist, and... Um, and he was also an admirer of this great Russian way, which is why Putin loves him so much. Stalin showed very little respect for Lenin's objections, accusing him of, quote, <clears throat> liberalism and brushing aside the number of his criticisms as stylistic. He reacted to Lenin's charge that he was being <clears throat> over-hasty as, uh, as kind of a scornful like dis dismissal, like Lenin is obviously ill, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And yeah, at this point, Stalin obviously understood that Lenin's strength was just gone. See, Stalin had proposed that Ukraine, Belarusia, Belarus now, then Belarusia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia should enter a Russian federation as republics to be governed by the supreme bodies of the Russian Socialist Federative Republic. Drop out socialist from there and look at the modern political map and spheres of influence, just saying. The plan was not well received by the territories in question, obviously, and, you know, despite the sudden urgings of, of Kirov and Orjokonidze, it was rejected by the Central Committee of the Georgian Party. A battle happened between the local communists and Stalin's centralizers, which resulted in a complaint to Moscow about Orjokonidze's <clears throat> high-handed and boorish behavior. He had uh, apparently described his opponents as a chauvinistic rot that has to be thrown out. And yeah, Lenin gave the rot some, some short shrift, really. He uh, sent the complaint to be dealt with by, you know, none other than Stalin. 
accusing the local communists of infringing party discipline by airing their differences in public. Because although Lenin was all about this party unity sphere, he had some respect for internal party debates. But outside in the public, Lenin would have none of it, because this image of stability had to be upheld, as they had just basically won the civil war, and they couldn't afford to show any signs of weakness at this time. Lenin also charged these guys who opposed Stalin with impertinence and lack of upbringing. The Georgian Central Committee responded by resigning en masse. This, this made Lenin suspicious enough to actually appoint a commission of inquiry, which, uh, at the suggestion of our dear uncle's Uncle Joe, Mr. Stalin himself, was headed by another good friend of ours, Felix Dzerzhinsky. Yeah, this um, Dzerzhinsky guy, obviously, another... Um, well, Russified Polish person opposed to the principle of self-determination to all ends. Uh, just to remind you, he's also the father of what we know as KGB. The guy really enjoyed, you know, his ice picks and bullets in the heads. The commission seemed designed to whitewash Orjokinidze. But something happened that made Lenin recognize, recognize the true nature of, um, of the latter's ministerial style. Lenin, you see, Lenin had asked his deputy Rikov to go to, to Tbilisi to see for himself, you know, to get the hands-on approach on this whole situation. And during Rikov's visit to Orjokonidze, someone mentioned a white stallion which a mountain tribe had presented to Orjokonidze, and on which he liked to parade through the city streets. Orjokonidze took, uh, by the way, uh, this is the same Orjokonidze which has sheltered Stalin... Uh, who basically was his family friend, and, you know, they're uh, related by marriage at one point. Uh, you know, good good pals there, Orjokonidze and Stalin, these guys. Anyhow, Orjokonidze took this as a slight upon his honor. And, yeah, basically gave this Rikov inspector guy a slap in the face. The incident appalled Lenin. For, for all the fact that, you know, he was really a spiteful, rageful man... Lenin had never lost a uh, kind of a small-town Puritan's belief in the need to keep appearances. And there is something, like, really tragic, I think, like, really hurting about this last phase of Lenin's life in which understanding and weakening grew together, basically, you know, as, as, they, as they come when uh, death is close, really. See, like I've mentioned before in the show, Lenin was a political opportunist. He was sort of a genius in this opportunistic way, and uh, he had not enough experience or political power to lose his naivete, in a way. You know, he was an idealist through and through. Lenin expected his fellow revolutionaries to share his own moral standards, being possessed of a, quote, a natural asceticism of a character which power did not corrupt. Lenin had never understood that thuggery, you know, was only a kind of a short, really short way away from revolutionary ruthlessness. And now, now for the very first time ever, late in his life, Lenin came to realize that, you know, he had kind of brought up a whole regime of thugs and criminals and, you know, not much else. The slap in the face and Dzerzhinsky's subsequent cover-up were the catalysts that made Lenin face the truth here, which, you know, would eventually lead to his letter to the Congress. And, uh, yeah, this distressed him to the point that uh, this probably caused the second stroke of Lenin. Dzerzhinsky reported to him on December the 12th and was told to return to Georgia and renew his investigations. 
On the following day, Lenin had two minor strokes, and three days later, another major stroke brought back in the paralysis. However, Lenin was determined not to allow his body to let him down and attempted to work again within the week. He shocked his colleagues by informing them that unless they allowed him to give dictation, he would refuse all medical treatment. A subcommittee of the Politburo, consisting of Stalin, Bukharin, and Kamenev, which, again, all are mentioned in the letter, met to discuss the matter and proposed that, quote, <clears throat> Vladimir Ilyich has the right to dictate every day for five to ten minutes, but this cannot have the character of correspondence and Vladimir Ilyich may not expect to receive any answers. It is forbidden for him to have any political visitors. Neither friends nor those around him are allowed to convey him any political news. See, and, uh, the way, the way this was communicated, it's kind of a, it, it is kind of a puzzle, you see, because, um, True, this is the kind of the language that that a lot of doctors kind of tend to use, you know, peace and calm and everything. But why? Why do we find it here? What right by this point had anyone in the Bolshevik party, had anyone to tell Lenin what to do? And the usual answer to the question, which was posed in many Western sources, just as, again, Alex de Jong, which is my primary Western source on this, and also the um, the Socialist Party of Russia sources and the Communist Party of Russian Federation sources, they all kind of seem to, seem to agree. And um, together with with Khrushchev's own mem- memoirs about the whole issue and and all these sources, they seem to agree that Lenin was obliged to submit to party discipline. But you know, if you think about it from a modern perspective, it, it's just stupid. It's just an excuse. Although there is, like, really not much evidence, like, in written forms, because everyone says, no, 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 we just cared about Lenin's health. You know, at least I feel by my own personal experience, and, you know, after three years of podcasting, I'm allowed to make all my conclusions from the sources that I read, uh, this kind of looks like Stalin really wanted to shut Lenin down a bit. Sure, it's, Lenin is not at his best, but Lenin is able to write. Lenin is able to dictate. Lenin has strong opinions now, and uh, as we can see, these later opinions were really angry, and Stalin kind of tried to shut them down as well. See, Stalin sort of tried to take Lenin out of the game, I think. Just, Just about when he, as we can see here, was about to turn on Stalin. And yeah, indeed, the stroke of, of Lenin could not come at a more like appreciative time. In the words of um, in the words of one Karl Radek, who's you know as uh, as Alex de Jong calls him, <clears throat> self-appointed jester to the leadership and author of many excellent jokes before Stalin had the last laugh. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's how I, his description is given. He Karl Radek says, quote, "On this occasion, God voted for Stalin." I'd like to add that at by this point, everyone voted for Stalin. Because, you know, it's usually not uh, not about who votes, it's about who, who counts the votes. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Although the timing of, of this Lenin's decline was very opportune, the deterioration came as literally no surprise to anyone in the party by this point, and the political realignments which uh, kind of entailed, yeah, they were already underway. The key factor here, I think at least, was some hostility to Trotsky. Despite, despite his popularity with the rank-and-file members of the Bolsheviks, uh, kind of leading old Bolsheviks from the, the 17, everyone basically loathed him at this point. Considering him an arrogant, unbearable intruder, just remember his actions during the war with Poland and, and his kind of massive support for this world revolution. Lenin, in the meantime, had begun to look to Trotsky for support. Early in December, and again, early in December, 1922, he had asked him to call and propose that they form an alliance, quote, against bureaucracy, which is again mentioned in this final speech of Lenin. And, more importantly, he asked Trotsky to become his deputy. Trotsky subsequently maintained that Lenin suggested he succeed him, and they should make common cause against Stalin. But honestly, uh, as much as Trotsky would seem to be a good guy in this situation, remember that Trotsky is the voucher for the world revolution, and a massive murderer on his own, who's kind of gotten justification in the latter years, well, you know, only because his opponent was literally Stalin. So, just remember that... For, for those guys who are fans of Trotsky out there, Trotsky wanted to burn the whole world in communism and red as well. Whatever the truth of the matter here, and whatever his true motives there were, were Trotsky really failed here. He was not a professional, he was not a bureaucrat, and at this point bureaucracy wins everything in Soviet Union. With Lenin's open support and a minimum of political acumen, like the very bare-bones minimum of political action, he could have been unstoppable, actually. There, there would be a world revolution, and um, as I will return in the Great Game, Great Game Volume 2, Part 2, because I will return to India at one point later on this month. Yeah, he could have won. The victory of Trotsky in 1922 was much, much more likely than often described, even though, even though Russian socialist sources tend to describe Trotsky as literally an even bigger villain than he already was. But they tend to downplay this whole situation. They just blame Trotsky for being nothing but a terrorist. Even though that, too, is an exaggeration. Trotsky was popular with the party's left wing and, more importantly, with the army, even though he managed to lose a lot of battles. Moreover, he was politically really glamorous. He was one of those famous revolutionary types, unlike other members of the Politburo, including, you know, Stalin, who was basically... Sort of a gray blur by this point. With the succession, his, for the asking, incredibly, Trotsky refused. There can be few sadder cases of political ineptitude, really, than Trotsky's behavior during his last years in Russia. He constantly misread the mood of the country. His advocacy of labor conscription was the case in point there, and it lacked all sense of any political timing. 
And even further than that, he just kept resorting to words when only, like, actual deeds would do because the situation was abhorrent. War communism had shattered the country and people were literally starving. And, and his biggest mistake ever was the fact that he underestimated Stalin because... Because Stalin was just a purely practical man with no command of theory. Trotsky, however, was the other end of the spectrum. He had only theory... And no practice, because like I've mentioned multiple times before, General Secretary was not the lead position in the party until Stalin made it to be there. And another kind of, you know, sidetrack here, but I probably have said that before, but um, I hate Stalin with terrible passion. He's a monster and mass murderer, but you just can't help yourself to understand how much, how much one man with complete dedication and like zero morals or zero kind of distractions with an iron will, truly a man of steel who could literally stare down Superman. That is why that is why I call these series Man of Steel, how much he could actually do. I hate him, but you do have to give him credit where credit is due. This man truly, truly deserved his nickname. Well, Trotsky... Trotsky was more or less um, a rampaging maniac. Just as brutal, but you know... For D&D fans out there, Stalin was lawful evil. Trotsky would be just chaotic neutral at best. With evil leading tendencies, but hey, still. Trotsky just simply could not cope with the infighting of machine politics. And he remained of this, this member of this traditional Russian, old czarist even, intelligentsia, kind of completely blinded to the larger issues which were at hand here. But yeah, even though Lenin at this point in 1922 was a sick man, he wasn't giving up. He was a crazy revolutionary with mad ideas. See, uh, nine days, nine days after his stroke, he wrote uh, his, his testament, which I read you at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, and here, here as you heard, it was basically an overview of the party and assessment of the Politburo. This document is one of the biggest kind of things written by, Stal- by by Lenin at his later days. What he wrote there, what he wrote there that I read you in the beginning, was um, was considered even for that time one of these most kind of strongest words for the party's biggest theoreticians. At the same time, many commentators kind of think that Lenin's judgment is <clears throat> quote. Extraordinarily precipitatious. Because if by the dialectic, which Bukharin hasn't studied, he means basically the pragmatic manipulation of the categories of um, objective and subjective. That is, the manipulation of reality, which Stalin practiced himself later in life, and, you know, those traditions have really never gone away. We just have um, what we see here now as... um, as from a philosopher's perspective, very dialectic in itself, because back then they manipulated the press, as right now it's internet commentators. George Orwell was somewhat true, if you think about it, because he who controls the past controls the future, he who controls the, the now controls the past, and kind of the ends have not changed. The means have, however. And, you know... It was it was weird in the 90s when, when we all thought it was getting better, but um, I'm pretty sure that all of you, my listeners now, if you've listened to my, any of my previous shows, know how this relation, manip- manipulation of reality has um, 
has turned out for modern-day Russia. And yeah, about this, I do have to give a shout-out to, um, to Vata TV here. Uh, these guys are one of my prime sources, because they gather up Russian news and publish them in a more satirical format than I do. And if you speak Russian, because the, their show is in Russian, it's on YouTube, it's called Vata TV. And uh, they've also advertised me to their, you know, because there, there are a lot of Russians living in the United States and outside there who want to know what, what's going on, and Ukrainians and other Russian-speaking people. So to you guys, because I'm pretty sure a lot of you can uh, read and write and speak Russian, uh, go and check out Vata TV on YouTube. That's an ad, because I grab a lot of my news from them. Because, uh, well, they basically post their news news uh, ads, and I just then go and reread their, their posted links and everything, so they've been a lot of help, and they've invited me over, and I had an interview with them. So, hey, go check them out. Uh, but that's, that's sidetracking here. Anyhow. <clears throat> Lenin basically... Basically decided that uh, if by this dialectic he really means this manipulation of reality, then Bukharin would indeed never understand it just being a simple cavalry commander. And, you know, he would go by the book until the very bitter end. Tatakov, the other young leader. Yeah, that guy, according to Lenin, was possessed by both, quote, will and ability. But again, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy always beats down everything, and as we heard at the beginning... Bureaucracy was what Lenin was fighting against at this point. The Testament is a strange document that has been interpreted in a number of ways. Although it soon became known to the party, it would not be published in the Soviet Union until 1956, until the aftermath of Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. And yeah, I spoke about Khrushchev in my early episodes, when I just started out three years back, and I just, you know, dedicated two shows to Khrushchev which is way too little, so, you know, if anyone wants to know what we're going to do next is, uh, Khrushchev's era is going to have another nice look after we've, we've done the Stalin. But yeah, it's hard to say what Lenin wanted in this whole situation, because with this testament, as you heard it, he was not pulling the way for Trotsky to succeed him, nor was he, like, actually hard on Stalin there, who emerges kind of rather well, though with, you know, a touch of menace. No one comes out looking good, really, but there are no serious recommendations for the future either. And even though modern-day communists and everyone, uh, they like to present this document as total Lenin's denunciation of Stalin and, and stuff like that, and his, like, pushback, and and it kind of is, but only kind of. And, uh, you know, I, even I, when I was doing the Lenin's theories last year, I, I kind of, you know, took it for what it, what it doesn't say more than what it does. But then again, maybe that is the way how to look at it, because that's how the later Soviet, Soviet Union would operate, and this is how, uh, that is how things would operate even in, in later Stalin era. Because, again, and this is for those of you who haven't listened to my early shows about the everyday life, which, again, I'm going to have to redo some and uh, elaborate on others, but sometimes, sometimes what was not said in the Soviet Union was much more important than what was said, because, again... Imagine that the whole Soviet Union, including the political elite, is just one huge prisoner's culture. It's a culture of imprisoned people with strict rules, strict guidelines, and, you know, atvichai za bazar, so to speak. Basically, uh, be responsible for what you say. So, what's left unsaid is quite often more important than what is said. The document fails to nominate an heir. Instead, it suggests that no member of the Politburo deserves to succeed Lenin. At the same time, 
while making collective leadership difficult, since literally everyone is provided with mud to sling Gaddis' colleagues. Lena did not even cover the whole Politburo, omitting Ryukov, his guy who got slapped in the face, and Tomsky is literally nobody's. And they are, so you've probably heard them for the first time here, even though they've been, they've been actually doing things throughout the series, except, you know, they've been leading very small commissions. Assuming that Lenin was not expecting to return to active politics, and few men are realistic enough to know when comebacks are no longer possible, Lenin seems kind of, at least in my opinion here, wanted to cut the entire Politburo down to size, in a way. And and uh, even though the document says that, you know, Politburo numbers should be increased, that means that each power, that the power of each Politburo member should be kind of cut down, which is the important part here to look at. Because the lesser amount of members, the more power each member has, which is an interesting thing. And, you know, I think I think that Lenin maybe had a hope that it would kind of, Politburo would subordinate itself to a newly constituted central committee, which, you know, in some, again, naivety he never lost, would be kind of, quote, manned by good men and true. As if that would happen if a style would allow it. See, Lenin at this point was only just beginning to understand the kind of men who control the whole country. The Testament had been critical of their abilities, but had not touched on their morality at all. Because, you know, not like Stalin had any. And Lenin had his ideals, and Trotsky had his, like, world revolution to burn down everything. And if you think about it, about Stalin and the Djokonidze, Lenin produced criticism of another kind, really. He... Dictated three notes of the nationalities issue on the Georgian affair, which uh, show that he finally had Stalin's kind of true value appreciated, I suppose. Lenin sadly recognized that the brutal administrative traditions of Tsarism had been translated wholesale, completely, into this new Bolshevik Russia. His notes single out the two Georgians for special mention. See, Russified non-Russians were the worst of all in all the murders there. Heck, Khrushchev himself was a Ukrainian, Stalin was a Georgian, Felix Dzerzhinsky was a Pole, so... Even our own Latvians were there. Uh, we had this, this Pelsha guy, and uh, sadly a lot of Latvians participated in the creation of the Soviet Union, so... No one's really without guilt. Orjokonidze's laying on of, laying on of hands, because that's how, uh, you know, my, that's how I can most closely translate the word Rukopriklatstvo. Yeah, that that thing is a lot used in Russian. It has nothing to do with confirmation. It's rukopriklatstvo uh, basically means, you know, punching someone in the nose, touching someone with his hands. It's not a hands-on approach. In this case, rukopriklatstvo means that you literally punch someone in the nose. And uh, Lenin thought this was inexcusable. And both he and Stalin had conducted themselves with all the sensitivity of all this... I don't even know how to name it. Um, Russian Jerzimorda. Literally, hold your face. Shut your face. It's just, you know, this idea of being being silent. The name the name refers to kind of um, kind of this weird, unpleasant provincial policeman and um, in Gogol's Government Inspector, which is another famous book. I highly recommend you read it. The character is a corrupt and disagreeable bully who became something of kind of a national type of this set. 
Lenin's meditations upon great Russian chauvinism led him to reconsider Stalin's personality, recognizing him for what he was, a thug. A merciless thug with iron will who should not be permitted to keep a job for which he was unsuited, at least later on. On January the 4th, 1923, Lenin dictated the postscript, or uh, kind of this addition to his will. And I will now read, you know, I, I read some postscript there uh, at the beginning, but um, I want to read you how, because um, that translation came from kind of this official Soviet translation of the Soviet speech, but now I shall read you a translation of uh, Mr. Sergio Montefiore, who's a Western scholar of the situation. Maybe, maybe this will be clearer to you Westerners out there, because, you know, it was all kind of clear at the beginning, but um, just so, you know, just so you remember this postscript, and compare it to what I read at the beginning. Quote, Stalin is too rude, and this fault entirely acceptable in the relations between the communists become, becomes completely unacceptable in the office of general secretary. Therefore, I propose to the comrades that a way be found to remove Stalin from that post and replace, replace him with someone else who differs, differs from Stalin in all respects, someone more patient, more loyal, more polite, more considerate to comrades, less headstrong. Again, and this is an important thing, which is why I read you this, uh, my Soviet version of this document there. In that document, Lenin, <laughs> in the Soviet interpretation, in the Soviet-made translation of English in this document, Lenin says, you know, just differs in some details, you know, he should be more polite, more nicer, more whatever. While the Western scholars who have read this document as well, put Lenin's words in a way more aggressive terms. The problem is I have the original Russian, and it's somewhere in between. It's not one way or another. And <laughs> the weirdest part is that even if in, in Russian he would say detail, that would mean a lot more different things that would mean, like, you know, someone else. And this is why, this is why, um, this is kind of this example why I really don't trust a lot of Western scholars about this issue, because they translated the way they want, the Soviets translated the way they want, the Russian scholars do it another way, so just just you know some some behind the scenes so that you get what I'm coming from all this and how how I build up my own show. Because there is like literally no one truth when we speak about the Soviet Russia, because reality is being warped. Who controls the the now controls the past again, and warping reality is, I think, exactly what Lenin means when he's speaking about dialectics. See. For the time being, at this point, when he wrote these documents, Lenin kept them to himself. Only his wife and his secretary knew of their existence. Either he was waiting for the right moment to publish them, or otherwise he did not know what to do with them. Yet, whatever his intentions, Lenin had clearly come to see Stalin for what he was. In no matter what interpretation there. And, you know, one may wonder what took him so long. The explanation lies kind of, in a way, in Lenin's respect for practical men. <laughs> it's the Russian tradition, you know. You, no matter someone's education or, or something else, you respect a man who can fix things. Fixing things and being able to do things in practical terms is a highly valued skill in Eastern Europe, and it's a cultural tradition, you know. So, maybe that would explain it. Although it had been kind of clear for years by this point, especially after, you know, all the Stalin's machinations that we spoke about in the previous historical episode. 
it, it had been like clear for years that he was like intriguing against Trotsky. This had seemed to be the healthy rivalry of, ambitious, of an ambitious man, because Trotsky was just as mean towards Stalin as otherwise. On major issues such as the ratification of the peace treaty or like the NEP thing, Stalin had either supported Lenin or, you know, had been a moderate. He was completely grey and silent, you see. And finally, like I mentioned back in uh, a few episodes back when I when I got to this, it was in Georgia, back in Georgia when he conquered it, that he and his supporters had finally showed their hand for the first time, helping Lenin realize the nature of the general secretary's kind of political style. And yeah, here I kind of have to come again back to linguistics, because... There are two translations of this testament document, which I've mentioned before, and uh, linguistics in this sense matters all, because, uh, you know, we think in the language way. We think in the words that we can speak, we think in the words that we can pronounce, and uh, the Russian word for rude, which has been mentioned both in Russian, Soviet translation, and here in the Western one, which I read to you just now, it's called grub. See, it's stronger and richer than, you know, just rudeness in English. It's kind of, you know, and I'm, I'm going to quote uh, Alex de Jong here, who goes into detail about this, and I have to agree with him. See this, this, and Montefiore too, by the way, he also kind of uses this analysis of linguistics to explain this whole situation. Grub embraces notions of kind of uh, rudeness, coarseness, a primitive, unpleasantly rough-hewn, barbaric quality, end quote. In the recognition that such a person was unfit to hold high office, Lenin himself at this point was, was basically admitting that he had finally, finally admitting to himself that he had backed the wrong horse. He had found ruthless fanatics to help him bring his party to power. And only now, only now Lenin had finally understood that they were completely unfit to govern. By the end of 1922, it had become obvious to the Politburo that Lenin's day was done. Already, the kind of the main concern of its members was power and how to keep it. Already, the Soviet Union distributed power and privilege according to pattern that would like follow follow all the way until the collapse in this way of the pyramid. The apex, the, the central power and everything, was formed by the Politburo. Beneath that was the Central Committee, which also kept power all the way through, and then local party administrations, and then their party rank and file, and and then literally below everyone, below the party rank and file everyone else. And everyone else was, well, us. The guys who had no rights or privileges, the guys who had to stand in line for sausages, the guys who could just be manipulated with. The guys who were fed information and told how happy we all were, while everyone else was suffering. The pyramid was, was already created here. In 1922, at the end of it, and the early 1923, the Politburo was... Um, now really anxious to provoke, prevent erosion of its power by the Central Committee. Which, in turn, you know, did the same to the party's rank and file, which, in turn, calcified their uh, sense of supremacy towards non-party members. Such attitudes basically derived from the seizure of power which the Bolsheviks retained by compulsion. They closed ranks, especially in Politburo. That is why we will only see Gorbachev, the very last leader of the USSR, will finally be the one who was born after the revolution. They closed it. Closed it down. Only the old guard were allowed to enter. Everything calcified and the, the revolution was finally over now. 
they were done. They were done toying with people they did not know. They were done pretending that it was all for the people. It was for their own personal gain and utter control. And here's when we see it. In 1923, early 1923, most of these calcifying Politburo members were also anxious to finally oust Trotsky. All these factors, the closeness of ranks and everything, finally combined to create a majority in favor of collective, collective leadership, which Stalin would dominate, obviously, later on, as a triumvirate, and where we haven't seen those happening. But about the triumvirate, yeah. I guess that's for the next episode. Right now, we've seen things from Lenin's point, and we have, like, finally documented the position where the Soviet Union turns from something for the people, by the people, to a truly authoritarian state. A bit sadder episode, a bit more academical than usual, but hey, hope you liked it, liked it. Sorry for the sidetracks, and sorry for kind of the... um, Lack of middle part where I say thanks to our patrons and everything. It's going to come back at one point. I just have to get ready for it because, you know, I'm, again, doing a day job too and don't have much time for these episodes. But thanks to all the patrons. I uh, have a day job once again, so I work every day from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. So I have to, you know, record these episodes and do research after that, often staying on late at night. Basically, I work all the time. So uh, sorry for the lack of the middle part, it's going to happen in next episode because we have this national celebration here in 23rd and 24th of June. Thank you for all this, and at the end of this episode, I'd like to give out a special shout-out to two of my listeners, Elsa and Patrick, who are both in Netherlands at this point, and uh, yeah, thankfully, thankfully I've arranged a meeting to, between both of them because I would like to get a book from Patrick and some nice Netherlands cheese, and Elsa's been helping me out a lot lately, so uh, it's really great that, you know, <laughs> I'll be able to get, get the, that stuff done, because at one point, when I'll get to World War II, making a whole episode about how Netherlands and Belgium went down under the Nazi control and compared it to communism, that will be a great one, because I can see some parallels here between the Baltics and and the, the Benelux countries, so I'd like to like to make one about those leave us some good reviews on iTunes because we've received some bad ones from <clears throat> uh, people who live in certain countries and are paid to do so, so leave us a good review there. Uh, yeah, and if you want, you can like always uh, support us on Patreon and on PayPal. We are sending out more stuff next month. We have finally, you know, gathered up stuff and uh, and if, uh, I went on Twitter, posted a small contest and there were some winners, but you know, hey, if you're a Patreon supporter or you've donated to us on PayPal, which you can do through our homepage, these uh, or just sign up in Facebook for Patreon, then you qualify for a pin, which is going to be sent to you in the early dates next month, because, hey, we're finally, you know, getting our stuff together. And finally, you know, besides these public announcements, which are terribly awkward, you know, since uh don't really have a mint roll anymore. Uh, one day I will explain to you why I no longer have a mint roll, but that's going to come way later. Uh, not until the beginning of next year, trust me. Uh, but the one final thing I want to tell you is that um, I was on an interview with another show. It was called The Come to the Table Podcast. The Come to the Table Podcast. It's a Christian show uh, with a nice... Uh, Sean McCoy as, uh, is the host there. And he basically interviewed me a while ago. I think it was like in early May or something. But he had a vacation, so he's published the episode now. I was on an interview there. We spoke about we spoke about like everyday life and what inspired me to do the show and how life is here like in, in Eastern Europe. So hey, if you can, please give those guys a listen and uh, yeah, 
check him out. It was really nice to be there, and it was a very different perspective for me. I spoke about a lot of personal stuff, and it was really interesting. Uh, and I hope you'll enjoy those those guys too. So, uh, yeah, what's what's the total end of this? Vata uh, TV on YouTube, if you speak Russian, that is, and. Uh, and yeah, the the Come to the Table podcast, it, it's a smaller podcast, it's just growing, they're not like, uh, there's not a lot of them there, but hey, you should check them out. And finally, uh, on the 1st of July, I shall have an interview with a person from the United States, John, oh no wait, it's not States, it's Scotland, Scot- sorry, 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 it is Scotland, uh, who has written a book about Soviet anecdotes. It's, uh, it's called The Just Joke, Comrade. And I've been sent PDF of that book, and it's amazing. He really gets into the whole culture about how why political jokes were made and how they were made and everything. And I will have him on a show. Danieli Bolelli, by the way, no less, from History on Fire fame, a fellow Dark Lord from the Dark Myths Collective, Go Dark Myths, introduced me uh, to this person. And I read a book, and it's amazing. And we shall have a great discussion, which is going to be like an episode just dedicated to his book, the Soviet jokes, what did they mean, and everything. That's going to be the first episode next month. And I don't want to spoil too much, but we're going to have a special contest where you might be able to win a signed copy of the book. Or so we have spoken right now. But yeah, that's about it for the news. I hope you like this historical episode. Uh, more to come later on. And see you guys next time. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.